All right, thank you, worship team. They always do an amazing job, for sure. All right, you guys can go ahead and be seated. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak to you guys this morning. I feel like it's been a hot minute since I've been up here. Of course, I'm always doing something. I'm always around, but it's been a minute since I've been on this stage, this platform. So I'm grateful for the opportunity and that when pastor is out of town that he entrusts me and Jordan to be able to take care of things for him. And that's an honor and a privilege. So as you guys know, tonight makes our fourth night of life groups, right? So life groups, super fun. It's been super great last week. If you haven't been coming last week, we launched pumpkins and did like a pumpkin drop and it was amazing and it was a lot of fun. And so life groups is just an amazing opportunity for us to be able to gather together in smaller groups. And Sunday morning, it's always hard to kind of like see everybody and say hey to everybody and get to know each other. But on Sunday nights, we really get to talk. And we've been studying this study that I wrote called faithful and true. And in this study, we've been exploring the different covenants in the Bible, and um, it's been a privilege to be able to hear some of the feedback that you guys are talking about in your groups. I feel like you guys are having some deep discussions, and it's great time. So if you haven't been coming to life groups, please come tonight. It's from five to seven. You'll get to meet each other. You'll get to see the people sitting around you. You get to eat, have food, and you'll get to have some fun. And so life groups, I'm just pushing it just a little bit because it is so important. But in the life groups, we have been talking about the covenants and how God has been faithful from the beginning until the end. And ever since I wrote this study, I've been kind of stuck on the story of Adam and Eve. And so I know that we've been talking about it in life groups and that you guys studied the Adamic and the Edenic covenant back in week two. But for me, I want to go a little bit deeper into the story of Adam and Eve this morning, just because when I wrote that study, I couldn't include everything, uh, of course. And so I want to talk about Adam and Eve just a little bit deeper this morning than what we'd have been doing in life groups. So hopefully that's okay with you guys. Hopefully you're good with that for sure. So as you guys know, and as you guys may be familiar with, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made everything that we see in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. So in seven days, the earth and the heavens was created, and God made male and female, Adam and Eve, and these were the first humans that inhabited the earth. And so God planted a garden and gave them everything they could ever need called the Garden of Eden. And so there he placed Adam and Eve, and they had all the food they could ever want. They walked in fellowship with God. They had close communion with each other and also with God. And so everything was perfect. There was no sin. There was no death. There was even no mention of death at this point in time. And so everything was absolutely perfect and amazing. They had everything they could ever want. And God placed two trees in the middle of this garden of Eden. And one was the tree of life, and the second was the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And so God planted these two trees there, and he gave them this one command, this only request he gave. And it's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. So this is the one command he gave them. The Lord God warned him, being Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of trees. So he gives them everything, provides everything for them. And the only thing he asks is, do not eat from this one tree in the garden. You have 15,000 other trees, but do not eat this one tree in the garden. And as we all know, Adam and Eve 
disobeyed God, and they ultimately would eat the fruit, and sin would enter the world through Adam and Eve. And so I want to pick up in Genesis chapter 3 today, and I'm going to be spending a large amount of time in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read them all through, but then I'm going to kind of go back verse by verse and teach a little bit about it. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at the moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shamed at their nakedness. So they sewed together fig leaves to cover themselves. Okay, so this is how sin enters the world, is in this short story. And the serpent in the story is Satan, the devil, which is still our great enemy today. And Satan tempts Adam and Eve, convincing Eve to disobey God and to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And Adam ultimately follows suits, and they both fall into sin. And it's no surprise today to hear that Satan is still tempting humanity and tempting us today. That every single person in this room has faced temptation in our life, and we all have faced the opportunity to turn away from God, to abandon God, and to sin against him. For the Bible says that our great enemy is like a roaring lion, and that he's looking for somebody to devour. And so the enemy is just roaming around, looking for somebody to devour. He's trying to tempt us to abandon God. He's trying to tempt us to turn away from him. He's trying to tempt us to fall into sin. And Satan even tried tempting Jesus. I'm going to read that story later, but Satan was even trying to tempt Jesus, the Son of God, to turn his back on his Father. And so if Jesus is not exempt from temptation, then none of us in this room are exempt from temptation as well. And there are three main strategies that's the devil that the Satan uses within Genesis chapter 3 for tempting Eve. There are three main tactics that he uses within Genesis chapter 3, and we see those same tactics in our lives today when we face temptation. And so I'm going to start with that first tactic he uses. All temptation begins with a question that's found in Genesis 3 verse 1. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 the question is, he says, one day the serpent asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And all temptation begins with that one question, did God really say? And when we see when, the, when Satan poses this question to Eve, that he's trying to make Eve question and doubt the command that God spoke to her and Adam, that he's trying to make Eve and Adam doubt what God had spoken to them. God had gave them a direct command, a direct word, not to eat the fruits. And when the serpent says, did God really say that? 
trying to make him question, trying to make them doubt. And in the same way, he, the enemy will try to make us doubt and question what God has spoken to us. Because God will speak to us. He will speak to us individually. And that Satan will try and steal that word out of our hearts and out of our minds. And God can speak so clearly to us that we know that he spoke to us. We know that we heard his word. But we still have moments where our thoughts and our mind wonder, did God really say that? Did he really say what I think or I thought I heard? And God can promise to bless us and to provide for us, and he does. His word is very clear that he will bless us and that he'll provide for us and make sure all of our needs are met. But the enemy still whispers in our heart, did God really say that? Are you sure you will have enough? Are you sure you'll have enough to take care of you and your family and your kids and everybody that's you're responsible for? And when our present reality looks vastly different than the future God promised us, it's easy to doubt. It's easy for that doubt to creep in. When God has promised one thing and our lives at the moment look totally different. And it's easy for the enemy to sow those seeds of doubt within our heart and with our mind that we begin to question if God really said that that it's easy for us to ask if we heard God correctly. Like maybe we were just hearing things and we didn't hear him correctly and maybe our human mind didn't understand what God was saying. It's easy to ask if God will truly fulfill his word, that if what he spoke will truly come to pass. And God has given us 66 books of his word, his spoken word. It's called the Bible. And he's written it down in black and white, words on the page that we can read and that we can study. But sometimes we can read his promises and see them in black and white on a page. But yet the enemy will sow seeds of doubt where there should be mustard seeds of faith. That we'll read his word and instead of having those little small bits of faith, we will have seeds of doubt. And so in our lives, we so often see the enemy sowing seeds of doubt instead of having just a little mustard seed of faith. And that's all we truly need is just that one little mustard seed. Because God's word is alive and active. And the Bible says we need the word of God because it endures forever. That the world and the heavens will pass away, but God's word will last forever. And that is why we push so hard here at One Life for you guys to read your Bibles on a daily basis. And this is why we write devotionals and write studies and give you guys resources for reading your Bibles on a weekly, daily basis outside of here. Because God's word is powerful and it's useful and it's beneficial and it's our life and it's breath and it's everything we need. And we want you to know the Word of God. We want every single person in here to know the Word of God. Not just whoever's preaching and speaking on the pulpit, but every single believer needs to know the Word of God. Needs to know what God says. Needs to know what God is speaking to them because the enemy will try and sow seeds of doubt within your heart. And if you don't know the Word of God, you'll have nothing to combat the enemy's lies with in your ear, lies and deceptions. You can know without a shadow of doubt what God has to say because you've read the Bible. You don't have to believe his lies because you know the Bible and what it says. But with that, our faith needs to come into agreement with the word of God in order for the power to be truly activated within our lives. Because we can read the Bible 24-7 and we can like, quote it and recite it, know what it says. But if we don't believe what it says, 
then there is no power. Our faith in the word of God has to come into alignment, into agreement. Because we can read it all day long, but if we don't believe it, if we don't truly believe what we're reading, that God died to save sinners, that his son went out on a cross for us. God's word says, but we also need to believe what it says. To believe without a shadow of doubt, he's faithful to his promises, and he'll do what he said. Because that is the enemy's mission, because he knows scripture, he knows the word of God, and he knows the power of the word of God. His mission is to stop the seed of God's word from being sowed within the soil of our hearts. He wants to stop that seed from ever being planted within our hearts. That he wants to create doubt within our hearts so we'll never truly believe what God says. He would rather create doubt and questions within our hearts and minds so that we will never truly believe God's word. That we'll never truly believe what it says. And that's why he'll send doubt and questions. Because if we doubt, if we question, we'll never have true faith in his word and that word will never be activated within our lives. The power will never be full in our lives until we believe it. So the enemy wants to prevent the word of God from, our, from increasing our faith. And so he will whisper, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Did God really say that you will be healed? Did God really say that your family can be restored? Did God really call you his beloved? Did God really say you're forgiven of all of your sins and you are a new creation and the old has passed away and the new has come? Did God really say that he will provide all of your needs, seeds of doubt, being sowed within our hearts and with our mind? And if they take root, we'll never have faith to believe in God's word. We'll never have that power activated within our lives if we never truly believe and always doubt. Because in Genesis... Verse, sorry, Genesis 3, verses 2 through 3. I'm going back to what the serpent tells Eve just for a minute. Genesis 3, 2 through 3. This is what Eve replies to the serpent. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. And so this is Eve reciting what God has spoken to her, quoting what God has spoken to her. And Eve remembers what God said, but she, she remembers God's command, but she remembers it incorrectly. Because God told Adam and Eve that they could look at the fruit, but they could not eat the fruit. That was the only thing that God said, is you cannot eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But Eve here says that God told them that they couldn't even touch it which is wrong, couldn't eat the fruit. So Eve remembers the command, but she remembers it incorrectly. She adds something to God's word. She adds something to what God has spoken. She remembers it incorrectly. And here, as humans, we are prone to misunderstand and to misinterpret what God has spoken clearly. That if we don't know exactly what God's word said, if we don't know exactly what scripture says, if we misinterpret it or misunderstand it, the enemy can slip in his lies and his deceptions and cause us to fall into temptation. And so there's a second tactic that, this, that the enemy uses to tempt Eve and that the enemy uses to tempt us. And that is we fall into temptation when we forget who we are, our identity, who God made us to be. And we see this in Genesis 3, 4 through 5. It's a continuation of the story. 
This is the serpent. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And so first, Satan tries to cause Eve to question the voice of God, but now we see the serpent deceives Eve into believing that once she eats the fruit, then she will be like God, that she has to eat the fruit of this tree before she can be like God. However, the problem is Eve forgets that both her and Adam are already made in the image of God at this point. That she is already like God before the serpent even says this command to her. She is already made in the image of God. And this is when God made male and female on the sixth day. Genesis 1:27. It says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then we'll go to Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 2, 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So when God created both male and female, they were created in the image of the likeness of God. That's what scripture tells us. They were made in the image and the likeness of God back in Genesis chapter 1. So humanity was formed from the dust of the ground to bear the likeness of God. Eve does not need to eat the fruit to be like God. She is already like God. She does not need to eat that fruit to be like God. She is already made and has been made in the image of God from the very beginning of her existence. And humanity, us, every person in this room, tends to forget who and what we are. We are tempted and we are deceived and we fall into sin because we forget who and what we are. Not who we think we are, but who God says we are. Because sometimes those are two very different things between who we think we are and between who God says we are. And it's not how society labels us, because society likes to put certain labels on certain groups of people and say that you can only do one thing if you're this type of person, but how God created us. We tend to forget that. We forget we're made in the image of God, that we are bearers of his very breath, that the same breath he gave to Adam and Eve is the same breath that each and every single one of us carry. And we are set apart from the rest of creation because of that breath. And because we are his beloved, we are unique, we are special, and we need this firm understanding of who we are, who God says we are, who he made us and created us to be. We need this understanding if we're going to survive, if we're going to endure and resist temptation in our lives. And now the law, the law, the old ways will try and deceive us into believing that we must do X, Y, and Z before we can be like God. The law will try and convince us that we are made holy and righteous through works. That if we do all of these good things, if we obey God's word to a T, if we never sin, if we never fall short, then we can be like God. Then we can be holy. Then we can be righteous. And the law will trick us to believing that we have to do all of these things before we can ever be like God, before we can ever be worthy of his image. 
But the problem is, is we do not have to strive to be like God. We simply are by design. We don't have to strive to be like him. We already bear his image. From creation, from the moment we took our first breath, we already bear his image. We are already like him. From the moment we were formed in our mother's room, he shaped us into his image. It's not something we strive for. It's something we simply are by design. 2 Corinthians 3 says that as we turn to God and believe in him and pursue a right relationship with him, the spirit of God makes us more and more like him. That it's the spirit of God when we come to know him that changes us into his glorious image. We do not have to perform good works to be worthy of salvation, but through salvation, through believing in him, through faith, we are made more and more into the image of God. It's not through what we do, but it's through our faith. It's through our belief that makes us more and more like God. Because when we are saved, when we commit our hearts to him, when we decide to be in a right relationship with him and pursue that relationship with him, the spirit of God within us makes us more and more into his image. It's not anything we do. We just believe. We just have faith. And then God transforms us into his image. God makes us more and more like him as we walk with him. So we don't have to do all of these things to be made into the image of God. We just have to believe and to pursue him and remain faithful to him. Because the desire to be like God is not bad. It's not bad for us to want to be like God. Being a Christian literally means to be Christ-like. And that is our job, is to be Christ-like and to reflect Christ into this world. But it's something we cannot fulfill on our own. It's not something that we can do in our own actions, and our own performance. Only the Spirit of God within us can make us like God, can make us Christ-like, can make us true Tristans that reflect his light into the world. It's the Spirit of God upon salvation that makes that happen within us. Not our own strength, not our own actions, not our own performance, but salvation and faith that enables us to be bearers of his image. But with this understanding of who we are, who God made us to be, we must have an understanding of our limitations as well. Uh, We are human, and being human means there are certain limitations to what we can and can't do. And we must understand also who we are not. Because the third tactic the enemy will try to use to tempt us and to sin is we fall into temptation when we try to become God. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. Back to our main passage. Genesis 3, 5. It says, God knows, this is the serpent speaking, God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And so the serpent tells Eve, if you eat this fruit, she will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil is something only God can possess. Truly knowing all good and all evil in the world is something that only God can possess. Because only God is all-knowing. Only God knows all things. And so the serpent convinces Eve that she can possess knowledge only God can possess. And so the serpent convinces Eve she can not only be like God, but she can become God. And it is that temptation that is the root of our sin today. 
because he uses the same tactic on us. Because I've been, I've read this book before by Jen Wilkin, and she writes in her book that at the root of every sin is our rebellious desire to possess attributes that belong to God alone. So at the root of every sinful act, and the temptation is we can possess something only God possesses. We are called to be like God, but not to be God. Because there is a natural order to the universe and how God created the universe. Because God is the creator, of course. He made all things. He is high and lifted up, seated on the throne above all else, the king of kings. Authority over all things. And everything was created through him and by him. And everything exists because of him. And humanity is beneath him. We are submitted to God. We are submitted to his authority, and our lives are devoted to him. And there are certain things only God can do and know. There are certain things our human minds are too limited to comprehend. For God is omnipotent, which just means he's all-knowing, and he is omniscient, which, sorry, all-powerful, all-knowing is omniscient. And so only God is those things, and we are not. We are not all-powerful. We are not all-knowing. We do not understand all things. And this deception is, is we can cross the barriers of our humanity and become God. That is the deception, is that we can somehow break through our limitations and become God. And if we are not careful, we will will ourselves to the position of God. We will make ourselves God over our lives. I know this may sound confusing, but it's, it's subtle. It starts very subtle, is we desire knowledge and understanding that only God can possess. We begin controlling situations ourselves without seeking God's guidance. We begin making decisions without seeking God's approval first. We begin following our own will instead of pursuing the will of God. And it's this subtle rebellion that doesn't seem like much, but it's abandoning God when we should be turning to him. It's relying on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own judgment, when we should be relying on the wisdom and the strength and the intellect of God. Relying on ourselves and cutting God out of the the outcome of every single situation, we want to be in control of all things. And eventually, we are no longer like God, but actively supplanting the role of God in our lives. We're no longer trying to be like him, but we're trying to take him down from his position in our lives. We no longer rely on the strength of God, but we rely on our own strength. We no longer seek God's wisdom, but we trust our own judgment. And we must understand our place. He is God, and we are not. Not by a long shot. We are not God. And Jen Wilkin also writes in the book that I mentioned earlier that our limitations are by design, that God created us and designed us with these limitations for a reason, because we were never meant to be God. We were never meant to be God in our lives, and we were never meant to be in control of our situations and of our lives and of our family and everything else that's going on in the world. Because no matter how hard we try, we cannot control and predict every outcome. We cannot control and predict what's going to happen in our families, in our schools, in our works, in the world around us. We cannot control and predict every little thing that we cannot explain. 
And we cannot understand or begin to fathom why we had to go through this or why we had to go through that or why that had to happen because we cannot understand the mind of God. We can't understand why certain things had to happen because it is beyond our understanding. And it's something that only God can truly know. Because some things and some thoughts and some understanding is not within our capacity as humans. We have these limited minds, and God is all-knowing, all-powerful. As we are created in the image of God to be like him, we also have limitations by design. And we will be deceived not only if we forget who we are, but also if we desire something that only God can possess. So it's a matter of understanding that I've reached the end of myself and I need to rely on God and I need to trust in God and know that he is going to take care of me and that he is going to provide for me and that ultimately he isn't the one in control over it all anyway. So I want to continue going down our main passage of scripture, Genesis 3, 6 through 7. Genesis 3, 6 through 7. It says, the woman was convinced, and she saw the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it could give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, then gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So she saw the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious. Sin can be very deceiving like that. Is outwardly, sin can look appealing and satisfying and attractive. And from the outside, sin looks harmless and even seems to fulfill our inmost desires. Because Eve had this desire to have the wisdom the fruit could give her. And so it seemed like if she ate that fruit and sinned, that it would satisfy that desire within her. And the same thing can happen to us is when we see sin, it looks harmless, it looks good, it looks attractive, it looks fun. And it may even seem to satisfy a desire of ours, an inmost desire that we have. And we know that the world promotes sin like crazy with like social media and TikTok and television and all these things as the world is always promoting sin and pushing us to sin and making it seem like it's okay and that it's okay to define who we are, that we can do whatever we want without any consequences. Because the fruit looked beautiful and it looked delicious and Eve wanted the desire the wisdom it could give her. But sin always leads to death. No matter how fun it looks initially, no matter how attractive it looks, no matter how appealing it is, sin always leads to death. Because we see in James 1, 14 through 15. James 1, 14 through 15. It says, Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away, These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So temptation starts from our own desires. Eve desired the wisdom the fruit could give her, and so that enticed her and dragged her away. And in the same way, our desires can lead us into temptation. Our sinful desires, our fleshly desires can lead us into temptation. But the sin, but one thing about the sin that Eve committed, the sin was not looking at the fruit. Because she looked at the fruit and saw it was beautiful and saw it was great, but that wasn't sin. That was just temptation. She didn't sin until she took the fruit and ate it. Just looking at it, the sin. 
And so all of us in this room have been tempted from one time to another, and temptation is not a sin. Being tempted, being, like having this temptation placed in front of you is not a sin because even Jesus was tempted. Satan tempted him three times in the garden. So even Jesus was tempted. A man who did so without sin was tempted. So temptation is not a sin. The enemy's going to try and tempt you and try and trip you up. But the thing is, we have to endure that temptation. We have to resist that temptation because it only becomes sin when we act on it, when we put action to it. That's the only way that temptation can turn into sin is when we act upon it. Because sometimes thoughts enter our head and things come up before us that we can't help and that we can't change and it just happens because that's society. But when we act on it, that's when it becomes sin. When we act on our desires and willfully disobey God, that's when it becomes sin. And sin leads to death. Always. 100% of the time, always leads to death. Maybe not initially, but eventually it will. Leads to death. And death entered the world because Adam and Eve sinned. For that was their consequence for disobeying God, is that death entered the world. And that was their punishment for breaking their covenant with God. And in our lowest point, of sin and temptation and abandoning God and turning away from him, God makes this one promise, and he does not abandon humanity in their sin. He makes this promise to Adam and Eve. It's in Genesis 3, 14 through 15. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. It says, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all wild animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. This is a little confusing, like when you read it at first. This is a promise that God is making to Adam and Eve. A promise that there will be constant hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. And a descendant of Eve... A man will strike the head of the enemy, but the enemy will bruise the man's heel. So the descendant of Eve is going to strike the enemy's head. The enemy is going to bruise the descendant of Eve's heel. A little confusing, but I'm going to, I'll explain. I'll get more into it. And it says the descendant of Eve will be bruised by the enemy, but will ultimately crush the head of the serpent forever. That although the descendant of Eve, this man that will come, is going to be bruised by the enemy, ultimately this man will destroy the works of the enemy forever. That there is coming a descendant promised in Genesis chapter 3 who will crush the head of the serpent forever. God makes this unconditional promise to humanity in their sin when they have fallen short, when death has entered the world. He makes this promise that although humanity suffers the consequences of their sin, now that God is going to provide a way of redemption through a man, a descendant of Eve, will come, and that will be our redemption. And as we know, this man is Jesus. Thousands of years later, God sent his one and only son to be the fulfillment of this promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. For Jesus is the son of man, born of a woman, a descendant of Adam and Eve. 
Jesus was bruised for our iniquities, as Isaiah says. He was bruised for our iniquities. The enemy bruised him when he was crucified on the cross. Just as Genesis promised, he was bruised for our iniquities. The enemy thought he had destroyed him. The enemy thought he had defeated Jesus when he hung upon that cross. And yes, Jesus was bruised. He paid the price for our sin. He bore the weight of our transgressions. But Jesus came to crush the head of the enemy once and for all. 1 John 3.8 says, 1 John 3.8, But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil. But who has been sinning since the beginning? But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, the Son of God, came to destroy the works of the devil. To crush the head of the serpent once and for all. To crush the head of the serpent that deceived humanity in the garden. He came to destroy the very same enemy that caused humanity to fall into temptation in the beginning. And Jesus came to destroy every tactic that the enemy still uses against us today. That he came to destroy every temptation, every deception that the enemy may try and use against us believers today. And Jesus came to be a better and greater Adam, to be the fulfillment of something that Adam and Eve were not capable of doing. Because we see that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. I've been talking about it, I've been hinting at it just a little bit. I want to read that story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. It's Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, He fasted and became very hungry. And during that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him, only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. So we see here that Jesus is tempted three times. And as I said before, temptation is not a sin. It's when we act upon that temptation that it becomes a sin. And we see that Jesus is tempted, but he does not give way to sin. And what does he use to combat the temptation of the enemy? Scripture. The Word of God. And that's why I said all the way at the beginning of my message that you need to know the Word of God, that you need to study it for yourself, that you need to have it without a shadow of doubt, knowing what God says, because when the enemy tempts you, the sword, the Word of God is the sword that you can use to swipe away all of his temptation. It's what Jesus used in the wilderness was the Word of God. And we need to use and know the Word of God when the enemy tries to tempt us as well. 
And just as the serpent tempts Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan tempts Jesus in the garden, in the wilderness. Satan whispers into the ear of Jesus just as he did with Eve in the beginning. The same enemy whispers within the ear of Jesus. And he uses the same tactics on Jesus as well. For I mentioned three different tactics, and we see each of those tactics here with Jesus. He tries to make Jesus question and doubt what God truly spoke over him. If you are the Son of God, he says that twice. And before this passage of Scripture, God had just spoke over Jesus when he was baptized, that you are my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus just spoke that over Jesus, that you are my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we see in the very next chapter the enemy looking at Jesus and saying, if you are the Son of God. So he's making Jesus question and doubt the very word that God had just spoke over him a chapter before this one. And we see that the enemy uses the same tactic on us today. And we see the enemy trying to sow seeds of doubt within the heart of Jesus. He's trying to make Jesus doubt what God said, but he's also trying to make Jesus question his identity and who he truly is. He's trying to make Jesus doubt and question whether or not he truly is the Son of God. Because in this moment, he's been hungry for 40 days now, and I'm sure he doesn't feel like the Son of God. He doesn't feel like who God created him to be. And in this moment, Satan is whispering in his ear, are you the Son of God? And the enemy also appeals to Jesus' desire to have authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. Because temptation comes from our desires. And when, Jesus, and when the Satan tempts Jesus, he says that if you look at all these cities and all these kingdoms, you can have it if you bow down and worship me. And that is Jesus' desires to be worshipped and to have authority. And so when Satan tempts him, he tempts his desire. And yet, the same tactics the serpent used in the garden, the enemy uses with Jesus in the wilderness. And he uses with every single person here in this room this morning. The same tactics, the same lies, the same deception. However, where Adam and Eve and every single person in this room has fallen short, Jesus lived and resists every single temptation without sin. While humanity and us only has to be tempted once to commit sin, Jesus was tempted three times without being deceived. He never sinned. He never gave in. He never acted on the temptation. And while we are deceived like Eve in the garden, believing the lies of the enemy, questioning the voice of God, Jesus knows the truth. He knows the word. He is the better Adam, the fulfillment of what Adam and Eve couldn't do in the garden. Because Jesus succeeds where humanity falls short. We see in Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, the high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. Faced all the same same temptations, all the same testings that we do, and yet he did so without sin. And Jesus came to prove that he is the better Adam and that he destroyed the works of the devil once and for all. And he crushes the head of the serpent forever, proving that the enemy and his tactics and his scheme has no authority over him, the Son of God. And the most amazing thing is that Jesus extends that same authority to us this morning. We read in Psalms 91.13. Psalms 91.13. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents 
under your feet. Luke 10, 19, this is Jesus speaking directly to us. It says, look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you will walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. Not only has Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, but Jesus has given us authority over all the works of the enemy. As he destroyed the serpent, he crushed the head of the serpent forever, but he also says that you can crush serpents, that you can trample upon its head, that you have authority over all the deceptions and the lies of the enemy, that every temptation the enemy may try to throw at you, you have authority over it all. Just as he defeated the enemy, he says you have defeated the enemy too. We cannot live a pure and holy life without Jesus. He is the one who gives us the power and the authority to resist temptation. Because on our own, we will fall short. We will fall short of a standard every single time. But through Jesus, through his power, through his cross and his death, we have authority over all the power of the enemy. The serpent which deceived humanity in the garden is now crushed under our feet. The serpent with his lies and his deception and his twisted tongue is crushed under our feet. We have authority over the enemy. He is a defeated foe. For the enemy may have deceived us once. He may have caused us to question the voice of God before. The enemy, have, the enemy may have caused us to doubt the promises of God before. But the enemy cannot harm us anymore. The enemy cannot speak to us like that anymore because we have Jesus, his power, his authority inside of us. For we have been given the authority to crush snakes, to stomp upon its head every time we see it trying to come and speak into our hearts and speak to our minds. We have the authority to crush snakes. We have the authority over every temptation we may face. We can face and endure temptation without sinning because of Jesus. We don't have to be slaves to our sinful desires anymore because Jesus has given us a new heart and new desires. And so we can face temptation without sinning just like Jesus did. We've been given authority to resist temptation, to know the truth, to stand in our place, to know who we are and to know who we are not. And I want to break this up with just a short story, a short illustration. I know it's been very heavy right now, so I'm going to tell kind of a funny story, and you can laugh at it. It's okay. It's okay. But in the same way, the worship team, you can come up. I'm getting ready to close. The enemy, the snake, the serpent will still try and whisper in our hearts and in our ears today. He will try and sow seeds of doubt within our heart and mind. The serpent with its lying and deceiving tongue. And as most of you guys know, I am a full-time teacher now, and I also work here as a youth pastor at One Life. And so I'm around kids a lot, like 24-7. I'm around kids and young adults, middle schoolers, high schoolers. Like, that's my job, literally. Both my jobs is to be with kids. And so I have seen how the enemy has wrapped itself around this generation and has wrapped itself around middle schoolers and high schoolers and even young adults. I've seen so many teenagers now more than ever who's been bound by anxiety and depression that the enemy whispers in their ear that they're worthless and that they're ugly and that they will never fit in, they will never have friends. 
that the enemy convinces them that they, 12, 13 years old, that they have to worry about their future and they have to worry about tomorrow and they have to worry about the clothes that they wear and the friends that they make and how they're going to fit into society. And I've had several students between, you know, my job as a youth pastor and serving and being at the school disclose to me that they struggle with self-harm and suicidal thoughts and that they think their life is no longer worth it. And I've met so many students who have tried to commit suicide. And the enemy has whispered into their hearts and into their minds. And being an adult is no different. We face the same struggles. We're just better at hiding it. I feel like as adults, adulting is no better. We carry burdens and trials every single day. We go to work. We take care of our kids. We have all these responsibilities and burdens on us. And the devil is a liar, a deceiver. And when we hear the voice of the enemy, the spirit of God needs to rise up within us and stand in the authority that Christ gave us. That we need to rise up within us and say, not today. You're not going to speak lies into my heart today. You're not going to make me doubt the voice of God today. That whenever we see that snake swerving around in our house, in our home, in our heart, that we need to have something rise up within us and say, I'm not going to listen to you today. And that something, the spirit of my grandma, rise up within you and say, I want to cut the head off of this snake today. It's not going to be in my home. It's not going to be in my heart. It's not going to be in my mind, but it's going to end here today because Jesus has given us authority over all the power of the enemy. That we can crush serpents under our feet. And when we see the serpent, the devil, lying, deceiving, tempting us, grab the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the sword of truth, the Word of God, and cut off the head of that snake. It doesn't belong anywhere near you, your kids, your family, your coworkers, whatever. Cut off the head of that snake with the word of God. Know the word of God. Know what it says, what his promises says. Speak it over your life. Don't listen to the lies. Refuse to be deceived. Remember you are a child of God that you are special and that you are unique and that you are set apart from the rest of creation and that the power and that the enemy has no power over you. That you are not, you may not be all-knowing, you may not be all-powerful, you may not be almighty, but you trust in a God who is. He is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, and when you come to the end of yourself, you have a God who's so much greater, so much higher than we are. That while all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus faced every temptation we did and did not sin. He's better, he's so much better than us, and we can trust in him. Through Christ, we have authority over the enemy's lies and deceptions. So I'm getting ready to transition into altar here. If everybody will stand in this place for me. I know Amy.